1: Um, I had a heads up that some were coming from Alicia's class. Are, are you in that? Are any anyone else? Is it just you, Kyle? Okay, because we're just going through this in order. I don't know that we're going to be talking about um, gender issues tonight, but I'm, I, what I will do is I'll, I'll leave time for you know 10 minutes or so for Q and A, and we can skip ahead in the structure. I haven't filled out the outline yet on women being pastors, et cetera. But I'm happy to answer questions about anything you want to talk about, including those things. So I'll be delighted to do that. So I'll try to remember to leave time for that um, at the end. All right. Um, We've been looking at uh, polity or church government for a couple of weeks now, and we continue in our study tonight. We've already seen a variety of church government models, and we'll look some more at that tonight. Uh, The key question of this whole uh, issue is, does the New Testament lay out any one specific pattern for church government? And uh, Grudem answers, not definitively, but he advocates the plurality of elders um, in a local church and the, basically the congregational model, the uh, Baptist uh, polity that, that you know, we uh, uh, see in the New Testament. I think he advocates that, and we'll talk more about that tonight. He says on this issue of polity, it's not a major doctrine, and therefore there's room for charitable uh, disagreement, um, but still churches do need to resolve it. We need to know how we're going to be uh, governed, et cetera. Uh, it's very important. Uh, we've already seen um, in terms of church officers, Grudem gives a definition a church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Um, we looked at a- apostle and basically rejected any concept that this office is still going on today. Their requirement was that you had to see Christ, the resurrected Christ, and be specifically commissioned to the office of apostle. And since I don't think any of those things are happening today, I don't think any, I, I, I know, well, I don't know. I would have to think that there are no eyewitnesses. I mean, Elijah never died and all that. We have no clear word from the Lord on this, but it's, I think it's highly unlikely that there are any eyewitnesses left. And I think if God were going to have any eyewitnesses here on earth, it wouldn't be a mystery. You know what I'm saying? They'd be here for some reason. We'd have, we'd have heard about it, friends. So there's no apostles anymore today, et cetera. Then we started looking at the issue of elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, et cetera. By the way, I looked at the etymology of the word bishop today, and it's directly related to the Greek word episkopos. It just has to do with Old English. It's just their version. Of, it's an Old English ver- version of episkopos or elder, et cetera. So that's um, what a bishop is. All these are just interchangeable uh, terms, one for another. Uh, plural elders, as I mentioned, is the pattern in all New Testament churches. Uh, as we mentioned, these uh, the elder pastor, overseer, bishop, that's all the same thing. Um, The functions of elders we looked at last time to govern New Testament churches under the authority of Christ, to shepherd the people of God, namely to care for their souls and to teach the word of God. These are the three functions of elders um, as laid out in the New Testament. Now we just began this last week and that is what are the qualifications for elders. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7 uh, gives us a listing of qualifications here's a trustworthy saying if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer he desires a noble task now the overseer must be above reproach the husband of but one wife temperate self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not given to drunkenness not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect if anyone does not know how to manage his own family how can he take care of God's church He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So that's a well-known passage. I think we look at it frequently in the life of this church, but that's what we're looking for in terms of elders. Anything you notice in that list? We began talking about this last time. I think we began right at the start saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, an elder, he desires a noble task. What that does is it sets a godly ambition in front of young men in the church so that they would want to grow up in their faith uh, become doctrinally mature become mature as Christians and be able to serve in the future as elders and uh, we should be encouraging that we should uh, have a regular uh, machinery really for seeing young men growing up in their faith and being developed in that so it's a good thing I mean I I think we should understand And I touched on this uh, uh, in a sermon recently in uh, Romans 15, uh, you know, ambition is totally uh, depending on, on what it's connected to. It's either good or bad. If you have an ambition to do something good, it's a good ambition. If you have an ambition to do something evil, it's a, it's a bad thing. But I think that we should be very ambitious for the glory of God. We should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and be ambitious for it. And so here's a godly ambition that we should set in front of, um, of young men as they're growing up to say, you know, we need good elders in the future. You know, we're going to die. Okay, the other ones are on our way out. We don't want to be here forever doing this, okay? And so we, there should be others coming up along. And isn't it beautiful how God has gifted every generation with, with wonderful, godly men who are leaders in the church uh, so that they didn't all die out? And we see that beautifully in the relationship between Paul and Timothy. And so we have these qualifications here in 1 Timothy because he's writing to Timothy about it. Titus also gives us some overview. Any, any other th- observations you make in, in the 1 Timothy 3 passage? Anything you note in there? I'd be curious if you just speak to having a good reputation with outsiders. Yeah, well, let me let me turn that back just to the whole group. Why would that be important for a, an elder candidate to have a good reputation with unbelievers? Outsiders, I take as being unbelievers—people who are outside the church because they're they're watching. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. It's a good witness to Christ. You're giving a testimony to Christ. Okay. Now it's an odd thing because here are here are unbelievers. You know, you, you might disregard them. Say, so what, the, what does it matter what they think? You know, but the fact of the matter is, there is a common grace estimation of righteousness that just functions. You know, if somebody is a is a uh, an evil person, if he's uh, you know on the take as a judge, let's say, uh, taking um, uh, bribes. Or if he's corrupt in his manner, manner, uh, or you know, in in the way he carries his business, or if he deals harshly with his wife, or beats his children, or whatever, I think people just know it's wrong, and that corrupts your uh, your reputation, even if they're not believers. I mean, that's the stuff that's on the nightly news and in the newspapers and all that. We 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 just have a basic kind of standard of righteousness, and if you don't even meet that standard, you ought not to be an elder. I think that's some of the indication. All right. So and also we uh, kind of. In the end, elders do, in some sense, represent the church to the community. And if the church, if the elders don't have a good reputation with the with the community, then there's issues there, there's problems. Anything else you see in this list, 1 Timothy 3, that's of note to you? What about that issue of it? he must not be a recent convert? Well, why not? I mean, there's some indications right in there, but why not?
0: He needs to be mature.
1: Okay. Uh, to
0: be an elder. By definition, elder means somebody who's
1: older. Yeah, that would be the Greek presbyteros, which tends toward being an aged person or an elderly person, right? Whereas episkopos doesn't link to age at all, but the word elder does. So, yeah, I mean, there's that. But why else? I
0: think it means mature right? okay. in the
1: faith. Mature in the faith, okay. The
0: sin of pride Yeah. so devastating to all of us.
1: And mm-hmm. he compares that
0: to the sin of the devil. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think Kyle's absolutely right. I think that's that's the sense you get. If those Ezekiel and, and Isaiah passages really are talking about the devil, which I think they are, um, you know, he, he really, you know, he looked at himself and said, hey, "I'm pretty hot stuff," you know. I mean, I'm I'm better than anybody, and uh, that just led to his corruption, to his downfall. And so, um, a, a young a young convert is more likely, it seems from this passage, more likely to fall into that trap. You know, whereas an older person <laughs> realizes these things are, are not, they're not what they appear to be. You know, uh, everybody desires to, to have this position of leadership or honor or whatever. And, and then you, you realize that the trappings, the, 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 um, the outward trappings don't, don't really bring the satisfaction that you might think they bring. And what's left in the end is the job, the work, the responsibility. And uh, I think a more mature person knows that. And so that doesn't go to their head. They realize that they're going to give an account for everything to God. Everything you have has come to you from God and that there's no, no reason to be arrogant. But yeah, that's a very important thing that he must not be a recent convert. So we don't, we don't need conceited elders. All right. All right, good. Well, let's look at Titus 1. An elder, and this is similar, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we have some overlap between uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, Again, you see that word blameless, Actually, Titus has it has it in there twice, Titus 1. And so uh, there's that sense of there's just nothing obvious against the individual. Nothing pops up in your mind. Uh, the person has carried themselves with a kind of an outward, invisible righteousness and a love for God. What else do you notice in, in the Titus 1 passage? Well, the husband of
0: the one wife is in both.
1: Yeah, that's similar. There's some overlap there, and we've talked about that before.
0: But in Titus, he uh, says that uh, children, uh, the children should be believers, right? Basically, right. Whereas you don't have that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in First Timothy, I think there's a sense of managing the household well. Does it say that? Yeah. yeah, he's got to manage. So in both, there's a similar theme, which is that what's going on in the elder candidate's house, household, family matters. It makes a difference. Titus seems to go beyond and say that his children must be believers and not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. Now, here's where you get an an interesting issue. It's very clear then that you can be a Christian, even a good Christian and not be qualified to be an elder. All right? I mean, isn't that obvious? And and I don't think that there's necessarily any blame attached to a parent whose children do not believe. Now, I want to be careful about this because frankly, you know, as it is with divorce, so it is also with, let's say, failed parenting, that any parent would say, you know, I could have done things better. I could have been more patient, more loving, more Christ-like. I mean, there's always that. You're talking about people who live with you and see everything you do. And of course, there's no perfection there. But uh, we also know that the parents have no direct control over whether their children believe or not. And if you don't think that's true, then uh, all you have to do is read Isaiah 1, uh, verse uh, 2, which says, Hero heavens, listen, O earth, uh, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Okay, well, <laughs> he says later in Isaiah, what more could I have done than I did for Judah and Jerusalem? What, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. And look at them. You know, there he's using a horticultural analogy about grapes. And he says, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I did for it? And why did it yield only bad grapes? So that to me is proof that, that good parents can raise bad kids. And that's actually a repeated theme in, in, the, in the Bible. I mean, godly men who had ungodly kids. Sometimes there's the, 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 the quest to find what David did wrong as a father or what Eli did wrong or whatever. And in Eli's case, you can say he never interfered with his son, just let him go wild, even though he was a good man. But I mean, how many times is this? Samuel's kids were disobedient. I mean, it's just a regular theme, very humbling. But this to me proves that you can be a very good Christian you can be a godly Christian you can be a very fruitful Christian and not be qualified to be an elder um, and there's two indications of that in the Titus passage you also have to be able to teach suppose you your gift isn't teaching what would you say then if somebody says I'd like to be an elder but I don't have the teaching gift what would you say to them what Becky you can't be an elder It doesn't, doesn't mean you're not a good person. Doesn't mean God's not going to reward you more highly than any ever elder that ever lived. You just can't be that. That's all because it's part of the job. You know, it's like saying, you know, I'd like to be the music director, but I don't read music or, and I have a tin ear, you know. It's like, well, it just won't work. Be something else. Okay. You know, you can't be that. Yes, go ahead.
0: Herb just looked at me then. That <laughs>
1: I can't do that right now, but if that happened, I didn't see it. But if that happens, it'll it'll crop out, of it in other ways, and we'll deal with it then. All right, all right.
0: Just <laughs> what make one comment from experience? Sometimes those outside the church have a better read on people inside who think they're spiritual mm-hmm. and are not. I've yeah. seen that again and again.
1: Yeah, they can spot a phony, perhaps, and you know some things. That's true. That's true. So anyway, I think it's so important, especially if we start to get into the gender issue, you know, can women be elders and, and all that? To me, that is, it's un, unnecessarily emotional for people because there's many men who cannot be elders. If you just look at, the, at these qualifications, you know, it could be that your children are wild and disobedient and, and not believers. It could be. Um, or it could be you just don't have the gift of teaching, in which is really, I think, impossible to find any moral failure in that. It just has to do with what God gifted you. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with the individual. He just didn't give you that that gift. And so to me, I think it's so important that that mature believers just take the starch out out of that particular issue by realizing, you know, God does not reward elders more highly than he does others. He just doesn't. He rewards people for being faithful to what he called them to do. I mean, it's really quite that simple. If God said, I want you to go sit out in that field for the next two weeks and not move, all right? you basically have one thing to do or disobey. I mean, you go sit in the field for two weeks and not move. That's what God told you to do. And he'll measure your faithfulness based on whether you did what he told you to do. And that's an extreme example, but not so. I mean, you look at, who is it? Ezekiel had to lie on one side for 330 days and on another side for 39 days, representing the years. That's a tough job. Imagine, you know, nine to five lying on your side, you know, and that's what he told them to do. And he was measured uh, faithful by whether he did what he was told to do. anyway. But here's, here's uh, the requirements for being elder. And I want you to know, um, you know, and Grudem talks about these. These qualifications are clearly spiritual. And also notice that there's two types of qualifications. They're negative and they're positive. And, and we see this often. Not this, not this, not this, not, not, not. But this, 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 this. So it, both sides are, are needful. And you see the same thing in the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and then there's a bunch of nots. It does not envy, it does not boast, it does not keep a record of wrongs, it's not easily angered. So you see both the positive and negative sides here. Um, In this case, um, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Those are five negatives. And so we we, we need to not see any of these things in this individual's life, but then positively hospitable, uh, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So there's a posit- the positive list there, etc. Okay. But the qualification is spiritual. And what Grudem is saying is, just because somebody's a su- successful businessman, for example, doesn't mean he'll make a good elder. And, and this is this is a, a trap that churches fall into again and again. That those that are successful out in the community, that do really well, whose businesses have grown a lot or whatever, would necessarily make good elders. And sadly some of those individuals may de- desire to be elders and use their financial influence to produce that office. In other words, you know, there's an implied threat that I'm going to take my money and go to some other church if I don't have a high level of influence in the church. I want to be able to, to determine how my money is spent, et cetera. Anyway, those things are problems. These are spiritual qualifications, and we should see them that way. Grudem also highlights the incredible, important, incredibly important issue of role modeling, which we've already touched on lightly here. But it's clear that elders are supposed to be role models. They're supposed to be examples to the flock, it says in 1 Peter 5. Uh, 1 Peter 5: 3. it's the second to last one in this list of um, verses. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. This is a major theme. Philippians 3.17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. 1 Timothy 4.12, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and in purity. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Titus 2. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good and your teaching show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed that they have nothing bad to say because they have nothing bad to say about us. And then 1 Timothy 3, 7, you must also have a good reputation without outsiders, as we've already talked about. So why is role modeling so important for the elder? Why is that an important issue? Okay, that long dead space on the tape, they're all thinking. Okay, those of you listening by tape. Go ahead.
0: Looked on as an example for everybody.
1: Okay. All right. Looked on as an example for everybody. Okay. Why is that important? Why do we need examples? Jim, what do you think? So we should see it acted out and have an idea of what it means to be
0: this and do that.
1: Okay. Exactly. That's right. I think it's so
0: we're talking about good role models here, right? And obviously, as opposed to bad role, role models. Sure. And with a good role model being acted out, not only uh, are elders being light to the world, mm-hmm. but they are also by their mere role that they can draw people to Christ.
1: Right. Right. I think it also just has to do with how we interpret the Bible. Um, you know, when I was doing the the spiritual um, the sanctification book and and all that stuff, and we're talking about knowledge, faith, character, action, I said that knowledge breaks into two parts, uh, factual knowledge and experiential knowledge. Factual knowledge is gotten by reading the Bible. Experiential knowledge is gotten by living life. And the two of them are totally intermeshed. So if you see a verse that says something like this, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. If you have no examples of that in your life, then you can't obey the verse. It's really that simple. You have to see how it's done. How do you treat people with love? How do you bear patiently uh, with others who are opposing you? If you don't see somebody do it, you have to act it out. And then the same thing happens. There's so much of focus on the family here uh, that the individual is a godly husband and a good father. uh, That shows how much of that is caught by experience and by watching and, and that you can't read about it just from the text of scripture. Like uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, it's, that's great. You need that. It's so important. But then it's, it's so important also to have somebody who shows you how to do that. Um, so role modeling is very important. All right. We've touched on this uh, before, but the meaning of husband of one wife. Um, I don't know if we want to go through all this again, but I'll just touch on it. Um, some options of what this means. Divorced and remarried men excluded because the theory goes that they are not the husband of one wife. That's one approach. Polygamists excluded. Grudem favors this because all other qualifications speak to a man's present status in light. In other words, not presently a violent man, et Don't Don't take that statement too far as like, well, last week he was a violent man, but he's reformed now. He's turned over a new leaf. Obviously, he has to have established a new character for years. But suppose, you know, in the past he was uh, these things. That doesn't disqualify him from the office. That's the point that Grudem's making here concerning his marital state, um, et cetera. Uh, Grudem gives us some additional thoughts. Clearly, church leaders' families are meant to be exemplary since other qualifications get very specific about his children's leadership at home. We've talked about that. Unmarried men like Paul and Jesus, for that matter, have sometimes been excluded from office on the basis of this verse in some churches. It does happen from time to time, and some people perhaps even in this church might advocate that position, uh, etc., saying, well, you know, you're not the husband of one wife, so you can't be an elder. You have to have a, a wife so that your marriage can be put on display, et cetera. Some people hold that view. Obviously, if you take that to its logical extreme, if I were to become a widower, I'd have to resign from being pastor, you know, so that would be a very tough day for me, the day I both lose my wife and my ministry. Um, so, you know, but very few people would ever take it that far. In other words, you have to be presently married all the time in order to, you know, to be a pastor. Long story short, it's a challenging Verse, you know, if, if he had meant to talk about divorce, there are words for divorce, etc. It, it's not easy to know exactly what uh, this verse means, but that it's important is clear because it's in, you know, it's in the requirements for elder in both First Timothy and Titus, and also the requirement for deacon. So the key idea, I think, is a one-woman man. It means more than just no divorce, but a full commitment to one's wife, as Christ is committed to the church. I think that at least we can say, Jack.
0: You know, sometimes it leaves out words, and sometimes you, you, you have to read in a little bit of something like You know, it says actively the the husband one wife, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. In other words, if a, if, if, if a man, oh, like you said, if, if something happened to your wife and all, you, you would still have never been married but once, you know, mm-hmm. your husband of but one wife. Mm-hmm. You, you could just take
1: the thing all kinds wow. of directions. Right, like I mentioned, there's no one advocating that, thank God. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the Greek just says a one-woman man. That's a literalistic translation of what the Greek says. So uh, at any rate, uh, let's go on. Uh, public installation of elders. Uh, this is usually done by the ceremony of laying on of hands in public. First Timothy 5:22 says, "Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands." I think that's just more of the same, where it talked about don't ordain to the elder ministry a recent convert, something he already said in 1 Timothy 3 when it says, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Could also be, a, you know, if you don't know somebody well, maybe that they've been a Christian for many years, but you don't know them. They haven't been in the congregation a long time. Uh, it's a significant thing to lay on hands. That's what it's saying. So don't be hasty in laying on hands. But the point I'm making here is that that's an indication that, that was a ceremony. And we see the laying on of hands as a major theme really throughout the Bible. You know, the uh, ordination of Aaron, uh, Moses laid his hands on Aaron, etc. Uh, the laying on of hands by the Aaronic priesthood uh, signified the transfer of sin from the people onto the head of the substitute. And that's so important. That's so vital even for the understanding the sacrificial system and how guilt can be transferred. But it was done through the laying on of hands. The indication with, with this ordination here is that something in some way is conferred upon the person who's receiving it. Now, the Roman Catholics go so far as to call it a sacrament, the sacrament of ordination. And it must be done by, uh, you know... Uh, an archbishop, I think, um, or maybe even a cardinal. I don't know their rules, but but that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit in a specific way is conferred on the priest uh, so that he is able to perform his tasks in the Roman Catholic uh, Church. For example, transubstantiation, be able to change the bread and the the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ, which we don't believe, but you have to have that uh, ordination, that laying on of hands done. But I think that there is some indication in the New Testament that uh, there's a significance and perhaps even something entrusted or committed to the individual through the laying on of hands. At least it was in the case of Timothy. Um, Yeah, I mean, right there in 1 Timothy 4.14, it says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So to some degree, he received a gift. We would have to imagine a spiritual gift which would enable him to carry on his ministry. And it was done when the body of elders laid their hands on on Timothy. So I think that uh, while we don't want to go as as far as the Catholics have gone with the whole sacramental mentality and all that, that it must be that at the laying on of hands that it comes, uh, we don't want to go too far the other direction and say that nothing happens. We expect nothing to happen. I mean, why couldn't God give a spiritual gift at the time that people lay hands on you know, and and to me, I've had a more of a dynamic view of uh, spiritual gifts. Anyway, I, I used to think that you got it kind of genetically in the in the original conversion package. You know, the, the moment you came to Christ, you got your spiritual gift package, and that's that. Now it's kind of like like getting parachuted into enemy territory, and you got this box, and it's got everything you need, and nothing else is coming your way. And and you got your radio, and you got enough food and provision for eleven days, and and this is it. There's nothing else coming. Well, I don't know that there's any indication in the Bible that that's an accurate way of looking at spiritual gifts. I mean, God can give you a gift anytime he wants to and then shut it down when you don't need it anymore. I mean, I just have a more dynamic way of thinking of it. Just looking again at scripture, is there indication to say that you have a gift for life or that you get only one chance at getting gifts or any of that? I don't think so. So why not? Why wouldn't God give gifts to people at the time of the laying on of hands? I just don't want to go so far as to say it only happens at that time or it happens every time hands are laid on. I wouldn't say that. At least it happened that for Timothy. So what I want to do when we lay hands on somebody like we do with Jeremy Cooper recently, what I want to do is say don't don't sell God short. Don't, don't expect that nothing will happen here. It's just a, a Zwinglian kind of empty ceremony and nothing's going to happen. You know, we don't believe in that stuff. We're not Catholics. I mean, don't, don't think that. Expect that God will bless and in some way give you a gift and equip you for your ministry. Ask him for it. Why not? And expect. I do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. I don't think that we should you know, expect that the Holy Spirit will not do something mighty and powerful in our midst when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. We're just not going to go so far as a Catholics to say that it's the real presence. But why wouldn't we say that the Spirit is going to be powerfully active in our midst during the time of the Lord's Supper? He, he told us to do this. And my feeling is we should expect it. So anyway, that's my, my take on the laying on of hands. At least this much is the case. Remember at the beginning of this, of this whole inquiry, we were talking Grudem, and he was saying an officer is somebody who's been publicly recognized to play a certain role or function. And I think this is the time of public recognition that this ordination set this individual apart unto this uh, elder ministry. And it's a significant thing. Yes, sir.
0: Somewhere in Edward's writings, he said we must not limit God except where he's limited himself.
1: Thing. It's beautiful, beautiful. You know, and that's the very thing I, I uh, talked about in my sermon on uh, uh, Psalm 50, verse 15, uh, and that I got from uh, Spurgeon, this concept that God has put himself under some kind of bondage by the promises that he makes and by the commitments he makes, etc. So that's a very good word. Thank you. All right, so the laying on of hands—you can just follow it through. It, it happens a lot. Prayer and fasting by the church body is also mentioned as the Holy Spirit, uh, as is the Holy Spirit's vital role. Acts 13, 2, and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So this is a, a regular, a regular issue here—the laying on of hands—and I think that the church ought to do it. Now, I'm not going to call it a sacrament or whatever uh, you know, ordinance like baptism and Lord's Supper. But I, I think that there's a clear biblical pattern here. It's repeated many times. It's, it's established in the Old Testament with the ordination of Aaron uh, and uh, also the other priests that followed. Whenever there's an ordination ceremony, there's the laying on of hands, et cetera. And I think it's a f- visible symbol of the gifting of the Holy Spirit enabling this person to do their work. All right, so this ends the elder uh, section. Any questions or comments about it? Anything? All right, I tell you what, why don't we, um, since I think there's more people from the, the women's class tonight, why don't we go ahead and, and I'll, I'll do my best. We'll just skip the deacon section for now, and we'll go on to the uh, gender uh, issue and just ask the question, because uh, I think it's clearest on this, uh, can women be elders? Um, so like I said, I didn't develop it. Look on page 11. It's the very vast back thing. I haven't done it yet, but I still remember... <laughs> You know, and I, I'll do my best uh, with it. But why don't you take your take your Bibles and look with me at First Timothy two, and uh, try to understand um, these these views. So I'm, I'm jumping out right at this point just to, to be a benefit to those who might not be with us the next time we study, and to be available to answer any questions they may have about our church. Um, but First Timothy two eleven and following is one of the two key pass. There's a few key passages here, but. I'll tell you what, though, I don't think there's any one key passage. I really think that this question should be answered best by looking at a whole bunch of themes throughout the Bible. Yeah, actually, let me, let me just before we even read this, I want to just preface it uh, in, in that way. Uh, one of the one of the insights that I think God's given me recently on this uh, topic uh, about gender and office in the church and and all of that um, came when I was doing my uh, Proverbs 31 sermon for Mother's Day. And uh, you know how it says, uh, "Let her works uh, earn her praise at the gate," etc. I was thinking about that, uh, and I was just thinking about the theme of rewards. And uh, it was something I'd noticed before, but I'd never linked it specifically to gender. Okay, and that is in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Jesus says, "He who receives uh, you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me." Uh, remember, in, in Matthew 10, he's sending the twelve apostles out to do uh, ministry. And it's going to go very well that first time, but it's not going to go so well over the 2,000-year life of the church. And so as usual, Jesus' words are immediate and then they stretch out over the whole church age. So he begins talking about what it's going to be like for the sent ones, the ones that are going out, and it's going to be pretty tough on them, frankly. Uh, They're not always going to be received. They're actually, in some cases, going to be persecuted. If you go to a town or village and they will not welcome you, he says, then shake the dust off your feet. He said, but your procedure should be whenever you go into a town or village, search for some worthy person And stay at his house until you leave. And if the house is deserving, let your peace rest on it. But if it's not, let your peace return to you. In other words, don't be upset if they don't deserve you being there. All right, don't let it ruffle your feathers. You've got a mission to do, but you've got to try to find a place. And if they are worthy people, don't be looking for a new place every night. Just stay there because you're not there for that. You're there to do the work. You know. So just let your physical needs be met by this family. Later in chapter 10, he comes back to talk about those people, I think. And this is where I think the cup of cold water thing is is frequently taken out of context and misunderstood. It's frequently used for benevolent ministry. Like we should be giving a cup of cold water to people you know, who are starving or thirsty. And I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. I think there's a much uh, more contextual interpretation, which is so beautiful. And that is that basically anything that anyone does to help these sent ones along in their way, in their ministry, will be rewarded. And as a matter of fact, you get the same reward as the sent one does. You get the same reward as the apostle. You get the same reward as the prophet. You get the same reward as the righteous man. He says that. If anyone, he receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. He receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will never lose his reward. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that support ministries are equally rewardable to upfront ministries. That's what he's saying. So if you support a prophet as he does his upfront ministry, you get the same reward he gets. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, let's, let's think about rewards, all right? We're talking about God saying, you did well. I'm pleased with you. What could be better than that? Isn't that what you should be seeking? Isn't that should be a motivation? I think you should be seeking rewards. It's not a shameful thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus tries to protect your rewards in Matthew 6. He said, don't do it in front of people to be seen by them. You'll lose your reward. You don't want to lose your reward, do you? So when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father's unseen. And your father sees what is done in secret. He'll reward you. So we should yearn for rewards. They don't substitute for having your soul saved. So it's lower than that. You should seek first that your soul would be saved. But now that your soul is saved, now what? Well, I think you ought to live for rewards. And what are they? Well, I think it's the praise of God that God would be pleased with you. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the son or daughter of God saying, I want to live my life in a way that he's pleased with me, that he likes what I've done. I don't think you can do any better than that. And so if I'm going to reduce it to something ridiculous and he tells you to go sit in a field for two weeks, your life has become very simple. At that particular moment, all you need to do is go sit in the field for two weeks. All right. Unfortunately, he doesn't usually send an angel with a scroll saying, you hereby commanded to go sit in a field for two weeks. Instead, you're given the scriptures and you have a sense from God what he's calling you to do and you try to be faithful to that. In the end, you will be measured by how faithful you were to what he called you to do, not by anybody else's calling. So you can't do any better than to do that which he called you to do. It's the, it's the number one thing that all of us should be seeking to do. So from Matthew 10 and Proverbs 31, what I get is that, that let's say a pastor's wife who supports the pastor in his ministry gets the same reward as the pastor. And uh, I can tell you, my wife's given me far more than one cup of cold water in my life. And, and even if she had just given me one cup of cold water, Jesus already said she'd never lose her reward. He uses rather extreme language. But she's given me far more than that. She's an excellent cook. I mean, she really is. So if a, a cold water is really pretty easy. I mean, how about, a, how about a meal, you know? And how about all the other things? And how many occasions have I been well-dressed for in which if I had had my way, I would have been poorly dressed for them. And it continues even to this present time, all right? I am probably untrainable in this matter, all right? So I need her help, such as when she asks me, is that what you're wearing? I have learned to listen to her, okay? Okay, that's a key key moment for me. I can be a fool and say, yes, it's what I'm wearing, whatever, but she's obviously brought up the issue because she thinks it's worth discussing, okay? I usually tend to overdress. That's my problem. But uh, at any rate, uh, you know, all of that stuff matters to God and it's vital. Now, why do I talk about this? Because we are just confused about this. We, We think that your worth and value is connected in some way to what you can write on your resume or your achievements or whatever. And the more splashy and big and all that it is, then the more desirable it is. And all that whole thing is false. But it's been around a long time. Remember how in, in Corinthians it said you are eagerly desiring the 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 more the showier gifts, etc. There's different interpretations for that verse, but it seems the Corinthians were kind of elbowing each other out so that they could put themselves forward. And so it's been around a long time. I, I really think it is the trap of the devil. There's that pride that you want to be up front, you want to be one of those th- things, and it's not a gender issue. It really is just a human issue. You know um, that that's why you don't want a recent convert. There's nothing wrong with recent converts. They're wonderful people. We want lots of them in this church, don't you? Somebody say amen. We want lots of recent converts. They just can't be elders yet. There's nothing wrong with them as people. And and so there are actually numerous restrictions in this matter. But the gender one tends to be so emotional for people because in effect you're saying there's nothing I can do. Well, due to what? To become an elder? Well, that's true of the person who doesn't have the gift of teaching. There's nothing they can do to go get it. God didn't give it to them. So it's not in any way meant to be insulting. Um, to me, I think instead, joy and delight comes from embracing God's roles as he's given them to us. And so therefore, I have lost most of my embarrassment about this issue. I used to be embarrassed, but now I think this is biblical truth. And we ought to just be happy to embrace what God's told us because it's a good thing. But the question that we have to ask here, and the first question, the others, you know, there are other questions that could be asked, and I'm willing to answer them as best I can. I do tell you this. The further we get away from the question, can women be elders, the less certain I, I am in my answers. And probably the less certain you should be in your answers, too, because it, it becomes less and less clear the further you get from that. But I think in this, it's pretty clear. The biblical answer to that question is no. Women cannot be elders of a church. And I get that out of First Timothy 2, um, 11 and following. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, I think it's important to notice that uh, the chapter divisions came in later just as a help so that we could read Christian books and then reference scriptures and uh, know where to go. But uh, we... uh, continue to go on and the very next thing discussed is what? Right after this. What's the very next thing that's discussed in First Timothy? Elders. That's the very thing we just got done reading. Is the juxtaposition uh, important? I think it is. And when it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority and then you find out that the person has to be able to teach and that they are going to be, you know, elders who rule well are worthy of a double honor. We'll find that out later in First Timothy 5. Then you see that it's it really quite, important, this statement that he makes. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. So therefore, I think that it's a pretty clear-cut case that women are not going to be called to be elders. This does not mean that they uh, are not good teachers or that they couldn't lead or whatever. It just means that God doesn't permit them to do so in this uh, matter of being an elder in the, in the church. Now, if you ask me why, I would have to tell you any answer I would give would be speculation. I, I think the ground for it I can give, for Adam was for him first, then Eve, I can give that reason. And then I can say, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was a woman who was deceived, I could give that reason and I'd feel pretty safe because <laughs> it's right in the text. You know, I did have one very clever and intelligent debater, a woman that I knew at Gordon-Conwell. We, uh, I, I pretty much knew whenever I'd see her we were talking about this issue. Um, <laughs> so like she'd come up and she'd say, you know, do you think that commands that are repeated many, many times are more valid or important than those that are just given once? And so I would say, why don't we just cut to the chase and what is it you're asking? Because I, I mean, I always knew that, that we were heading there eventually. And that's, what, that's the way it was at Gordon-Conwell. we were always talking about that one particular issue. Um, but she said to me, so what would you rather have? I mean, here's this woman who thought she was doing right. She was deceived. She was thinking she was doing well, but Adam wasn't deceived. I, I mean, I'd kind of rather have the woman. I said, you know, that's clever in one sense, but obviously for Paul, he'd rather not. And so whatever reason you have, he thinks it's important that she was deceived. Now, I, don't, I, don't, I can't go much beyond that. You know, clearly there was enough sin to go around and Adam knew very well what he was doing and it is in him, not in her, but in him, that the whole human race fell. So we should not, nobody's ever minimizing what Adam did. All I'm trying to say is that Paul gave these reasons. Now, there are, there's all kinds of work done on these verses. <laughs> there are books written. There are all kinds of things done. I'll tell you this, though. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But this word's going to be with us forever. And, and no matter how much work people do on it, it will still stand. We can't change it. It's there. And I don't think any godly person desires to change it. We just want to understand it. Um, so... Uh, what are some of the things that are said? Well, some of the things that are said is that Paul was writing to a certain specific situation in Ephesus. There were certain problems with the women that were there. They were um, you know, being misled into false teaching, etc. And so he is restricting the women in Ephesus in, in Timothy's time at that point from teaching, but there's not a general prohibition given to all women in the church. What's the problem with that approach? There's a problem right in the text. I mean, what's... So it's not written, I mean, your hermeneutics, that might apply with women being silent, never, because obviously Paul says they can pray in the church, so obviously that's dealing with the cultural issue in that sense. Some churches will say they can never ever speak. Right. You know. But that, that I mean, that's in context speaking in creation, right after creation, so he's given a creation ordinance. ordinance right? Well, that's it right there. You know, when he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, there's nothing cultural about about that. And, you know, I, I would ask this, 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 this lady who's a good friend. We were friends. Uh, it was always amicable, if, if spicy, but amicable. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I said, was it important to Paul that Adam was formed first? She would concede that it was. And then I'd say, then it should be important to us. You know, whatever was important to Paul as an apostle, as he's writing scripture, should be important to us. So that's pretty clear creation ordinance. You also have the whole marriage issue and that is the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and some have tried to separate the two. They say, well, he is the head at home but she could be the elder at the church. I don't know how that works really because I see the elder role as being authoritative and so I don't see that they that they could switch but that doesn't really answer the prohibition that's given here. Others have done fancy things in the Greek with verse 12 like they'll retranslate it I do not permit a woman to teach that she is an authority over man. That's what they do. The problem is that that Greek word is never used in that way. It's really pretty sad what people do. Um, for me, I think it's, it's better to just take it as it's, as it's written here. And I, I like to link it immediately to this issue of elder because it's the very next thing that comes. Any other questions about that particular issue? Yes.
0: Have you read uh, Wayne Grudem's latest book, Evangelical Feminism?
1: No he
0: addresses a
1: lot of this that we're talking about. In, yeah, uh, in that. yeah I, I would like to. I heard about it um, today, as a matter of fact, so I didn't know. I know he's done done work on this. Um, you know, you mentioned 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 14. Let's look at that for a minute. Um, and uh, actually, Peter, you alluded, I think, to 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. These are the other two passages that I referred to. <clears> 1 <throat> Corinthians 11... He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. This is 11 verse 2. Now I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. By the way, as I read the NIV, and if you're looking at a different translation, it may sound radically different to you. Um, This whole head covering thing, is really quite remarkable. And people have the hardest time. Are, are we talking about hair or a piece of fabric on the head? What? Um, so it's, it's really amazing. And, and it'll, it'll come right down into the translation, such that the NIV gives long alternate translations or an alternate translation. And it made it in the notes on the page, a footnote, but it didn't make it into the text. But anyway, so if you're reading and what I'm saying doesn't sound like what you're reading, that's why. It's because there's a challenge to translate it. If a woman does not cover her head, verse 6, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Uh, I'll tell you, verse 9, we'll get some people heated. Um, but... Verse 10, uh, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, a woman is not independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, no, nor do the churches of God. So that's the passage, the head-covering passage, the famous head-covering passage, which we have now read. Um, there's a number of things that I think are pretty clear. Uh, he's clearly being very balanced here um, as he talks of And he's going to say this in, in 1 Corinthians 7, it's even more balanced, where he talks about the husband does not have right over his body but the wife, and the wife does not have right over her body but the, the husband. There's a, a clear effort toward balance here. And the balancing aspect is he's clearly desirous that uh, men and women know that they absolutely need each other. They must have each other. And it's pretty clear that at least this much is the case when God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 2, he says it's not good for man to be alone. It's because he can't do it alone. And Paul reverts to the childbirth theme to say that basically the first woman came from man, but every other man has come from a woman, namely his mother. And so it has to do with reproduction, and and it just shows how intimately connected the two are. So at least this much I can say is that the ministries of women are absolutely indispensable and vital to the health and the life of the church. It's impossible for men to do what alone, what what God intends for the church to do and be. It's impossible. And so, therefore, they're absolutely, totally interdependent. They must help each other in the ministry. So what was very clear with what we call the cultural mandate, namely fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it, be fruitful and multiply, he clearly couldn't do that alone. I think it's not so clear, but it's equally, I can say, just as strong that we cannot do spiritually what God wants us to do either unless both men and women are doing what they're called to do. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. But I think it's also equally clear that they're given roles that are not interchangeable. That there are certain things that you can say of the man that you cannot say of the woman and vice versa. And this flies right in the face of the spirit of egalitarianism, which is driving so much discontent in this matter. There's a spirit of egalitarianism that says everything, anything that the man can do, I could do or anything, you know, vice versa. And so there's a blurring of of gender. And to me, I feel that gender is a gift of God. It's, it's It's a good thing for me to be a male. And it's a good thing for my wife to be a female. It's not a bad thing. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's a wonderful thing. It's a gift. But there are different things connected with that, not just biologically, but in, in terms of roles. Now, Peter mentioned that, you know, clearly God wanted women to pray in the church. Well, that's not so clear to some churches. And the reason that they say it's not clear is because of 1 Corinthians 14. Let's talk about that. And then we'll go back to the issue of, you know, women praying in, the, in, in public and in the church. But 1 Corinthians 14... Um, Ooh, I don't even know where to begin, but let's start at verse 29, uh, 1429 and following. It says, two or three prophets should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn um, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And by the way, that's just a very important verse just for this issue of gender and authority. I mean, it's about order. It's about orderliness. It's not about a love that he loves somebody more than somebody else. It's, not, it's just got to do with order and structure, um, I think. Uh, so, verse 33: God is not a god of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful uh, for a woman. Uh, to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, then he himself will be ignored. We'll stop there. So this is uh, another famous and important passage and it's uh, the issue of women being silent in the churches. Now, Grudem and Piper and others in their book, um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, the chapter on 1 Corinthians 14, they interpret... The silent in the church, uh, the prohibition against women speak in the church, they link it with verse 29. That's why I started there. So if you look at verse 29, it says, two or at the most three prophets should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. Now, what they say is that the weighing is a public assessment of whether the prophecy that was just uttered it was biblical and accurate and right or not. Because, you know, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not treat prophecies with contempt test everything, hold on to what is good, avoid every form of evil. So that's a filtering of prophecy. So the prophecy that was going on is that people were standing up and they were saying a word from the Lord. And then if they followed Paul's injunction here for orderliness, first of all, only one should speak at a time. And please don't tell me, Paul is saying, the spirit came on me, I couldn't help myself. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. So keep your mouth shut until the other guy is finished. All right, And then when he's done, then you can speak. Two or three, at the most three. All right, But after it's done, then we need some public weighing so that people can know, do we pay attention to what we just heard? I think what, what Grudem and Piper are saying is that, that women are excluded from the public weighing of the prophecy, not from speaking at all, period, ever in the church. The reason they say that is, go back to 1 Corinthians 11, there are these... You know, if a woman prays or prophesies, she should do it with her head covered, right? That's what they say. So clearly God intends women to pray and prophesy in the church. Hold on, say others. Is that so clear? Are, do we know that 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about a public setting? In 1 Corinthians 14, it says that, you know, women, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So clearly it's not disgraceful for a woman to speak, period. That would be so difficult for some, okay? That's all I'm going to say, all right? But imagine going through your whole life and never being permitted to say all of those things that pop in your mind to say. It'd be very frustrating for a male as well as a female, but I think it might be said in some cases even more for a female than it is for some males anyway. But this is not a universal prohibition against all speaking, but it's speaking in the church, and I think even more clearly in the set times of the church when there's a a service going on, that, that kind of thing, the meetings of the church. The question is, is 1 Corinthians 11 talking about women praying in the church? Now, contextually, you're really divided 50-50, okay? Because if you look at chapter 10, chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, it's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols and eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Is that in the church? Well, clearly not. It's in the marketplace. Or if you get invited to a non-Christian's home, But in verse 17 and following, it says in the following directives, I have no uh, praise for you for your meetings. See that? Do more harm than good. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, that settles it. This is clearly the public worship of the church. He's talking about the Lord's Supper there. So you pay your money, you make your choice. For myself, I think he's probably permitting women to pray and prophesy in public. Others don't think so. They think it's just disgraceful for a woman to speak during the public setting of the church so what do we end up with at 414 cleveland street at 11 o'clock okay we end up kind of a middle position okay you know women have been uh involved in giving testimonies about nank about ministries that they do uh even offering prayers at the end of that but there are certain kind of moments in the service that that have since the difficulty came in in the time of our church been reserved for men it's not officially so And if we had a woman read the scripture right before the sermon, I don't think that the roof would come down in the church. I don't think that. And we're we're looking at these things. I don't, you know, I I actually, uh, Eric emailed, um, I think Wayne Grudem or somebody, and asked this specific question about women praying in the worship service and reading scripture. And, And their mentality, their approach was that women should be permitted to do anything that's not clearly forbidden. Okay, so here you get into that whole uh, regulative principle versus normative principle approach. Um, for, for me, I think at least this much is the case. We don't know what to do with the head coverings. Okay, I don't, I, other than maybe one or two people, I don't think any of the ladies wear hats. All right, so that seems to be gone. Is there a universal, transformable, or transferable print? Uh, do you want to wear a hat? I don't, I don't know. I, no, all right. <laughs> Okay, is there a universal transferable principle from 1st Corinthians 11? There seems to be, and that is that there needs to be an outward display of submission to God-ordained male authority. What does that look like? I don't know. In every church it seems to be a little different, you know? Um for us it it's that maybe that time when, you know, and we didn't always stand up in when the scripture was read right before the sermon was preached. But I instituted that because I wanted there to be a sense somewhat like like you know, Israel at the foot of Sinai that we're hearing from God now. You say, well, that's not fair to the scriptures that are read earlier in the service, right? I, we, I've heard all these things. It's so interesting. It's just fascinating to be a pastor. But, uh, you know, I think all the scripture read in the service is important, equally so. But I wanted to have at least one moment in which we just had a sense of the seriousness of the word of God. It seemed reasonable for a man to do the reading at that point. It's not that, it's, that, that I, I have a specific word from God on that, etc., Concerning the other prayer things, I'm actually open to persuasion. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. There was definitely a time since I was here that women did all of the prayer nodules except the pastoral prayer, which I would pray right before preaching, et cetera. So that's where I'm at. I have left zero time for questions, but I'm willing to stay here for 10 minutes. If you all are willing, if you have somewhere you need to run to, I promise 10 minutes of Q&A, feel free to get up and go if you've got choir practice and all that. But I'll stay here for 10 minutes in the setting and answer questions. Any questions about what we've talked about? Well, good. Anyway, so, no. <laughs> I have a question about yeah. head coverings. Head coverings, yes.
0: Always, like in the beginning, it just seems like, oh, you can take that as a metaphor. My covering is my husband. His covering is Christ. And, but then it keeps going on, and it seems very literal. And then it says, does not the very nature of these things. And it's like, well, Indians have long hair. If I look at them now, the nature doesn't tell me that, you know.
1: It's a difficult uh, saying, doesn't the very nature of things teach you, et cetera. I, I would say generally, I mean, I'm not going to say that this is a good interpretation of Paul's doesn't the very nature of things verse. But isn't it true that for the most part, men and women have different hairstyles? I mean, I mean, almost universally, if I see, and my eyesight's getting worse by the by the month, so pretty soon I may be wearing glasses, although I'm kind of ashamed at this point I don't know I'm a very public person and I've noticed that when things happen to my body or whatever that people notice and comment on it and so I have to be willing to you know to, to get up there and preach with glasses like this and look but I I can't see as well as but I can almost tell if somebody's a lady or a man by their hair hairstyle so it may be just a general principle in almost every culture men and women's hairstyles are just noticeably different I don't know so but keep yeah yeah well see there you go there you go
0: but should I be ashamed? Which is what scripture seems to imply. If my hair fell out or something, is yeah. that physical? Is that make? Is that some kind of unrighteousness? I, um, Andy, mm-hmm. in our classes with Alicia right. on that, she gave some um, background about the deal about shaving your head. Yeah, that it was related that in those days, prostitution
1: and so forth were expected to shave their heads. It was a scorn, mm-hmm. like wearing
0: the scarlet Letter kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so it was really more reference to that. Mm-hmm. that you
1: know,
0: it, made you an un- it indicated you were unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so mm-hmm. speaking from that
1: perspective. I think that's a good thing. And, and so I'm always looking for a transferable principle so that First 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians 11 still says something to us today. And I think at least this much is the case. If that's if what you said is true there, it's don't look like a prostitute. I mean, there there shouldn't, you know, and for us, we probably know what that means. I mean, if you saw somebody walk in, you could probably say, hmm, you know, that's not appropriate. It's just not appropriate. And the reason is, it, it it's, I hate to say it this plainly, but it's to the prostitute's advantage to dress in a way different than most women do so that you know what she's doing. And so therefore in every culture there's going to be a, you know a way that you can present that. Maybe in that culture they shave their heads and you just knew what that meant. So I, the, the problem that you always get into with with New Testament background stuff is that it's not in the Bible. You have to you put you put your hand your your heart in the hands of experts and they're telling you stuff that you can't verify, but I think it's probably the case there. Any any other question about head coverings? I'll do my best with it. It's a tough, tough verse. I mean, one thing that helps me is if we as brothers and sisters in Christ, when and it's not just on this issue, but whether it's divorce and remarriage or predestination or any of the tough issues, that is, is if we come together side by side and look at the text together and say it's a tough verse, it's a tough passage. I want to understand it, I want to be faithful, but you are not my enemy and I'm not yours because we're having a hard time understanding a difficult verse. So, that I mean, that's what I, I want to try to get, get to. Better. I think in the last few generations, maybe only one generation, a lot of these things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, the length of hair for women, yeah. and the covering of mm-hmm. their heads, uh, the way they dressed, mm-hmm. uh,
0: especially there was a, like, with a woman who belonged to a man, mm-hmm. I mean, they did all these things out of respect for that position. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and I think we we have seen so much change. I mean, it's really been quite amazing, uh, and not just in this one area, in everything. I was talking to Nathaniel, and I said, Do you realize that you know, uh, a rural farmer living in in you know central Indiana in the 1850s would have more in common in his life with uh, the people in the time of the Exodus than he would with a Wall Street banker who's talking on a BlackBerry and crossing the street for one of his power lunches. I mean, it's just a whole different world we're living in now. So many things have changed. Just the- what, the plain people, but... Um, the Amish. Yeah, their, yeah. Um, their culture is
0: becoming too modern to fast, They're losing a lot of their
1: yeah. uh, spiritualness. It's very tough. And one of the big themes, and I've noticed it, is an attack on gender itself. I think it's satanic. Uh, I think homosexuality is part of it. And it's funny because uh, egalitarians, uh, evangelical feminists, get incensed with the connection between you know, the liberated approach on women's roles and the link to homosexuality. But it actually is a pretty strong link in my mind. That's
0: what the uh, goes after. Yeah. It's, Chris and I have discussed this before Wayne wrote, wrote the book. It's something we've just observed.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to... I mean, but it's a logical conclusion. If gender doesn't matter in this, then maybe it doesn't matter in anything. And if it doesn't matter in anything, then how can you forbid? And that's... It's not... Bottom line, it's not theoretical. It's actually happening in Episcopal churches and other ch- other denominations. They they see that and they've taken it to that conclusion. You know, But more conservative churches haven't reached that point yet and yet they're open to some other things. To me, I think gender matters. But I think the whole thing is just rewind the tape a bit and just get to this point. A Christian basically stands before his or her Lord and said, I want to please you. Have you told me what I need in order that I might do that? And I just consistently believe that the 66 books of the Bible are sufficiently written. There's nothing missing. It's not like, if only God, you had written that passage better, I'd uh, I'd be able to understand it. Nothing wrong with it. So we ought to begin by humbling ourselves and confessing our sins that we have such a hard time understanding what he has plainly written. And then say, Lord, bring us to where we need to be. Help us embrace our roles, whatever they may be. And then if you're faithful in that role, I mean, think about this. I've thought a lot about this. Suppose you do go through a windshield and you become a quadriplegic and you can't do anything except maybe pray. Are you of any less value to God? Can you live out the rest of your years like that in a way that pleases God? I would hope so. And so therefore, I think we have to lose this whole American achievement thing and just say, God, what do you want me to do? And be faithful with that. But understand that even that inner sense of what you want to do, you have to humble yourself and submit to the scripture and to the body of Christ to approve that. It isn't just an independent person's decision. I will be, I will be starting next week, the pastor, senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. Well, I'm going to have something to say about that because I feel like I'm called to do that, okay? So if you have that internal sense, I'll need that confirmed and then I'll resign, okay? Until then, I'll keep doing this. So you can see that internal callings have to be confirmed by Scripture and by the Bible. Two more minutes on my ten-minute promise. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Okay. Speak to us as a church as to how, the, um, when I read the passages on choosing elders and right. consider staff elders, if you do the pastor, overseer, bishop all as one, right. how do you how do you hire staff based on these requirements? I mean, it's almost impossible to really know right. to answer them fairly. I would Quite frankly, not every church sees all ministerial staff as elders. And as a matter of fact, Grudem says later in this chapter, um, he says it's not wise for churches ruled by a plurality of elders to have a majority of those elders being associate pastors who are under the authority of the senior pastor. Because then the senior pastor brings too many votes to the table in every issue because they're kind of you know, submissive to the senior pastor. He might fire them the next day if they don't vote the right way, that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of protection. There's some checks and balances on that whole plurality of elders thing. It's the very thing we're looking at as we look forward to the future of the polity in our church. If we're going to a plurality of elders, you know, what are the checks and balances? Sometimes they write them right in that, that the majority of elders cannot be, I don't know how they phrase it, but basically professional ministers. That's one way to do it. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had tonight. Um, I, I do pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Uh, Father, uh, if you desire women to have a bigger role in our Sunday morning worship, specifically in the area of, of uh, praying uh, for the offering or other issues, Lord, make that clear to us and guide us. Lord, we desire um, women to be completely affirmed in whatever roles you would have for them and not to be uh, more restrictive than the Scripture is. Um, Father, that's our desire. At the same time, there are passages we want to be faithful to, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and 1 Timothy 2. Help us to know, O oh Lord, and give us wisdom. What I said, I said honestly and truly that the further away we get from that central question of women being elders, the more uncertain we become. So forgive us for that and give us wisdom as we make important decisions. But in the meantime, help us deeply to love one another and encourage one another in ministry and live to God, to live our whole lives before you, to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom.